We are continuing this morning with our study of the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1278. Now, last week we looked at the opening summary of the central theological argument of the whole book, specifically that Jesus' priestly offering of a sacrifice of himself is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system or the Levitical system. Now remember that the audience for this book, this letter, the audience is most likely a group of Christians who had come from a Jewish background, who had come to Christ out of a background in Judaism, who were deeply familiar with God's Word in what we call the Old Testament, who were at, the, at that moment facing current and increasing persecution for the sake of Christ. Now, the author throughout the book, as these Christians experienced the temptation to return to the patterns that they knew, the old covenant patterns, the sacrificial system, Levitical worship, the author is calling them instead to hold fast to their confession of Jesus as the Christ and to live that faith out in practical, tangible ways in the real world. This morning, I'm actually going to read starting at 414 uh, just to get us back into the context here. But We're going to be focusing on uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. If you're able, of course, we need uh, the, the Lord to speak to us through His Word. So if you're able, let's stand together as I pray. Remain standing as I read from Hebrews 4 and 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to Your Word because only in Your Word do we find hope? Do we find truth? And yet our hearts are so perverse. Our intellect, our reason is so broken by sin that if you don't restrain our sin, if you don't shine your light into our hearts and minds, we will twist this your word. True though it is, we will twist it to mean anything else. And so Lord, give us your spirit. Be present among us, enlighten us, that we would see clearly what is true, what is written in your word, that we would believe it, that we would live it, that it would change our hearts. Send this your word like a hammer to break the hard rocks that are our hearts. Break us on your word and remake us in your image. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm Reading starting in 4.14, and then we'll focus on 5.1-10. to 10. This is God's Word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, To you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of the fear of the Lord. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Just a heads up. The author to the Hebrews talks about Melchizedek a bunch. I know that's kind of a hot topic in this area. I'm not going to talk about that today because we'll talk about it in a chapter or two when it comes up again. We'll touch on it a little bit more fully there. So just heads up, FYIs, for what's coming. Um, years ago, uh, Holly and I were watching a, watched all the way through really, a TV drama about a cable news studio uh, just kind of set in that, that location. At one point, one of the characters did something stupid uh, in public, so it quickly became public knowledge and public discussion, uh, and then, of course, became, because it was stupid, became a public relations master. Uh, and a little later, as you might expect, uh, this, this person's boss was asking him about the issue and what he was doing about it, what had happened. And the guy with the problem talked about how he had the best, most effective, expensive PR firm in the state working on it, and how here's how he was going to rehabilitate the image and uh, rehabilitate the image of the company, on and on about how to fix the PR problem. And his boss looked at him finally and said, you do understand that you have a PR problem because you have an actual problem, right? The reality is the PR problem was far easier to face, far easier to manage. People are mad, so let's do what we can to make them less mad instead of looking at why are they mad? What's going on that's the underlying issue that's the actual problem? We know the drill, right? We we do the right things, manage the information flow, do the right things in public where the people will see it, issue a statement with a properly apologetic tone, maybe make a big donation to some charity, Whatever, we know the drill. We've seen it a thousand times before. We deal with the PR problem. We see it all the time. But here's the thing. As easy as it is to point fingers at those famous people who do that, we do it too. We deal with the PR problem rather than the actual problem. We try to convince everyone around us that we're not really all that bad, that we're actually good people who have our things together, that this was, it was just a small mistake. You know what, it's really, it's so small you don't even need to really think about it. It's no big deal. We're actually good people. We, we try to put our misdeeds, the stupid things that we've said and done, because you know we all do it, in some sort of context so that they don't seem so bad, so they don't look so foolish or, dare I say, evil. For most of us, Most of the time, the sad reality is what people think about us is more important to us than the reality, than what we actually are. And this is nowhere more true than in our walk with Christ. I am more interested in looking holy before you. I am more interested in you thinking that I'm holy 
than I am in doing the hard work of actually pursuing holiness. Because, y'all, that is so much harder. It's a lot easier to manage what you see than it is to actually pursue holiness. In our passage this week, we, or excuse me, last week, we looked at the beginning of the author's uh, contention that Jesus' atoning life and work are superior to the Old Testament Levitical system. And as I said last week, he's going to spend the next five or six chapters fleshing that out all the way through about the middle of chapter 10. Um, This is the largest single section in the book. At the end of the day, the key question for these believers is this. Is Christ who he said he was? Was his sacrifice effective? Is Christ who he says he was? Was his sacrifice actually effective? And the author's resounding answer, of course, is yes. Christ is greater, even infinitely greater, than the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. It may seem appealing to us, to them, to return to the Old Testament system of worship, since that would neatly sidestep all of the attacks of the adversary. It would avoid all the persecution that the Christians were beginning to experience, all the greater persecution that was still to come. You can easily get around all of that. Take the easy route, just go back and worship according to the temple worship, and you'll be fine. You won't have to deal with any of that mess. Yet it would be a fool's choice. Trading away that which is absolutely certain and effective, and real for that which can do nothing. Trading reality for mere shadows. Jim Elliot is, is supposed to have written in his journal a little before his death, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. But surely he is a fool, and this is just my comment on the quote, Surely he is a fool who gives the truth away to gain temporary ease. It would be a fool's bargain. So in last week's passage, the author emphasized the benefits to the Christians provided by Jesus as an inducement for them to hold fast to the confession of their faith. Of course, our passage this week is part and parcel of the same argument, developing, fulfilling, pushing forward that same argument. But instead of showing Christ's benefits to the believers, here instead he shows Christ's resume as high priest, specifically compared with the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. He first explains the shape of the Old Testament priesthood, what were the duties and the qualifications and the callings, how the Lord called the priests. And then having shown the shape of that Old Testament priesthood, he reminds them of what they already know. Obviously, they're familiar with it. But then he goes, goes on and lays out the ways that Jesus fulfilled all three of those aspects, duties, qualifications, and calling. All three aspects of the, to be the true high priest that the Levitical system was just a shadow pointing forward to. He was called, Jesus was called, he had the qualifications, and he did the duties. He is the true high priest. For the original audience of this letter, of course, the ideas of priesthood, sacrifice through the sacrificial system, those were second nature to them. This was what they had grown up with. Everybody understood how how the system fit together. It was understood, and honestly, it still is in most cultures. It is understood that anything that broke a relationship, a wrong deed, wrong word, even a wrong 
uh, uh, thought that broke a relationship had to be paid for, had to be atoned for. And the more egregious the break, the greater the price was that had to be paid. And whatever was true between two people of equal rank, how much more so when the, the lesser violates the relationship with the king, breaks the vow to the king, how much more so in that situation? A sacrifice would have been required to make the relationship between the ruler and the subject right again. And lest we think this aspect of things and this way of relating to each other uh, is just something from thousands of years ago related to ancient cultures, backward times, whatever, what are the penalties if you break the law of the land today? What happens? You are fined, either money or time. Money and time being the two commodities that we use to express wealth in our culture, cash and time, the two things that you can't get more of easily. We put this in breaking the law now into language that we commonly associate only with religion. Are you ready? If you break the law against speeding, a sacrifice is required to propitiate the rulers of the land. And yeah, I get it. Most of us, you know, speeding is maybe the most commonly broken law, but it is still a law. So, you know, heads up. If you break the law against speeding, a sacrifice is necessary to propitiate the anger of the rulers of the land, to turn away their anger. Depending on how flagrantly you sin against this particular law, you may have to sacrifice some money or time at a court hearing followed by some money. You may have to sacrifice several months of your life to the state in the form of community service or even jail time if it's bad enough. It is an understood phenomenon that breaking the law requires a sacrifice. Because God is perfectly holy, infinitely holy, the penalty cost for breaking God's law, for violating His holiness, is likewise infinite. Death. Those who do not measure up deserve to be and are destroyed. God is the origin and the epitome of life, so when you break His law, when you turn away from imitating His character, you get death. This is what you declare by your actions when you break His law. You declare that you don't want to be like God or with God or even aligned with God. And having made that desire clear, you're given what your actions say that you want. To be unlike God and unaligned with Him and His character. And that is to be characterized by death. So a sacrifice is required, and to propitiate the law of God, it must be a blood sacrifice. It must involve death, because death is the penalty for breaking Christ's law. Thus, the whole Old Testament system. The death of an unblemished sheep or gold or bull or bird or whatever in place of your death. The death of a substitute on your behalf. But it gets a little more complicated than that, doesn't it? When the one against whom you sin, when the one whose law you've broken, when that one is perfectly without sin, 
who cannot even be in the presence of sin, of someone who has sinned, making the, or offering that sacrifice gets a little complicated because you got to sacrifice to cleanse your sin before you can go into his presence to offer the sacrifice to cleanse your sin. Wait, hang on, how's that going to work? It becomes, there's always in the, the you need someone uh, who will offer it for you on your behalf, a priest, right? Of course, throughout the history of the Old Testament, the high priest had his own sin to cover. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sin as much as he did for the sins of the people. So there's always something of a circular shape, circular idea to the character of the sacrificial system, almost a catch-22, if you will. You have to have a priest to offer sacrifice for you. But so did that priest need a priest, who needed a priest, who needed a priest, who needed a priest. And how do we get out of this circle? The Old Testament priests could not offer sacrifices because they needed sacrifices offered for them. More than that, more even than that, as if that weren't difficult enough, the sacrifice of animals, no matter how unblemished the animal was, no matter how perfect it was, the sacrifice of an animal could never fulfill the penalty of the law because one who was made in God's image sinned against God. And so one who was made in God's image had to bear the penalty for that sin. Only the death of one made in God's image could fulfill the cost, the penalty for breaking the law. The Lord actually takes the reality of the sin of the priests, the fact that they needed someone to offer sacrifices for them. He takes that reality and he uses it for our benefit for the benefit of the believers in the Old Testament, anyone who was called by God as a priest, one of the qualifications was that he must be able to deal gently with sinners, knowing the truth that he was one of them. If the priest is looking at the people coming to offer sacrifices and saying, you wicked, awful people, get out of here, you're terrible, I hate you. He's not qualified, he's not able to make sacrifice for their sin. But if he can look at them and see in them himself, is able to deal gently, lovingly, carefully with them, then he is qualified. He's able to sacrifice for their sins, knowing that he is guilty of the same things. The priest couldn't look down on those who needed to offer sacrifice, but was to be gentle with them, caring for them, shepherding them, even when he had to rebuke their sin. His primary task was to offer sacrifices for them to cover their sin. The priest was called, appointed by God, not by people. No matter how God used the, the different family structures, different people to be his instruments to work that calling, God was the one who called the priests, who chose the priests. And the priest was to care for the infirmities, for the weaknesses of God's people. Yes, do the religious tasks, but with the primary aim of caring for the people of God. Because ultimately, Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrificial system, was not aimed at placating God or turning away His wrath, save in a very temporary sense. Rather, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was to show the people just how serious their sins were, 
just how costly it was to fix them and to point them to the one sacrifice which would actually fulfill the law, which would actually turn away the wrath of God against sin. To point them for one who was made in God's image, fully human, who yet who never broke God's law even a little bit, didn't even inherit a sin death the way you, debt the way you and I do from his forebears. Yet who voluntarily paid the penalty for having broken the law, who stepped substitute himself for us, that was the once for all sacrifice for sin. Because he willingly went to the cross, he was both the priest offering the sacrifice, covering over our sin, interceding for us with the Lord, and also was the sacrifice that he offered. He was both the priest doing the offering and the sacrifice being offered at the same time. We see that Jesus fulfilled all of the messianic foreshadowing that is found in the priestly order the sacrificial system. He was called by God. He did not exalt himself to the role. He was the son, the second person of the Trinity from all eternity, but he was appointed by God to be the one who would care for the weaknesses of those whom God had chosen for himself. He was appointed to be the the high priest, in other words, appointed by the Father. We see this appointing, as it were, both foreshadowing in advance, which is what the author here is quoting from Psalm 110 in uh, verses 5 and 6, but also as fulfilled in the Gospels. When Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father's approbation, approval, rang out. The Spirit descended visibly on Him. He was thus appointed by the Father as high priest and anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit Himself. He carried out the duties of, of the high priest throughout his life, in Jesus' earthly life, in his ministry on earth, as we read through the, throughout the Gospels, he, verse 7, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He offered up prayers and supplications with grief and emotion for his people. Let me pause here for a second, because... This verse, this description uh, of the Father here has confused Christians for a long time. Jesus offered prayers, verse um, 7, offered prayers to him who was able to save him from death. Which sounds like maybe Jesus wasn't a willing participant in this whole scheme after all. That he was asking God, let me out of this, I don't want to die. But read closely. It doesn't say that he asked to be saved from death, just that he prayed to the one who could have saved him from death. God has complete power even over the grave. Just as Jesus could at any point have decided to come down from the cross, the nails weren't holding him there as if they could, he could at any point have said, nope, I'm done, I'm getting, out of here, and come down. But he chose to stay. That was within his power, within his right. So also it is within the power of God the Father to save him from death. 
But we can't accept that Jesus asked to be saved from death because immediately following that, the author says, and he was heard because of his reverence or because of his fear of the Lord, uh, depending on how your translation has that. Um, If he prayed to avoid death and his prayer was answered, then he didn't die. But he did die. Possibly it's the single best attested death in all of history in terms of the historical record that we have. So this has to mean something other than he asked to be released from death. I think, I think, and again, this is something that has confused Christians for millennia, and so there are faithful, Bible-believing, diligent believers who come to somewhat different conclusions here, but I think that this description is simply an exalting of God's power and authority rather than a summary of Jesus' prayer. The author has already said that the priest was to deal gently with the infirmity of the people, to minister to them, to care for them, and so I think this prayer, which was heard, as it was answered in the affirmative, His prayer is for the strengthening of those that whom the Lord had given to him to redeem. His prayer was for his people. And because of his righteousness, because of his fear of the Lord, he was heard. His prayer was heard and answered in the affirmative. He was wholly righteous. Unlike the Levitical system, unlike the priests in that system or the Aaronic priests, he did not have to be cleansed from his own sin because he had no sin. He was wholly righteous. To use the scriptural language, he feared the Lord wholly. All the days of his life, without break, without fail, without interruption at all, he was wholly righteous. So his prayer was answered. The sacrifice he offered was accepted and effective to bring full redemption to those for whom he prayed. But that may be the most difficult aspect of Christianity, isn't it? That we need someone else to sacrifice for us. Someone else to pray for us so that he'll actually be heard because we won't be. Someone else to heal our broken relationship with the Lord. We don't want to depend on anybody else. We want to fix it ourselves, don't we? We want to do enough good things and avoid doing enough bad things so that the Lord will accept us on our terms. Because then we would have something to boast about. Then we could feel confident standing before the Lord because we were right on our own. Standing on our own merits and have the right to look down on anyone who doesn't have their life together the way I do. All of y'all who are screw-ups are not like me. I've got my life together. That's a lot more comfortable, isn't it? Also a lie, by the way. My life is not at all together, but whatever. But the essence of Christianity is not Do right so that God will like you. It is not do enough good and avoid enough bad for the longest amount of time so that God will approve of you. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity in any way, shape, or form. It is not I'm smarter or wiser or whatever than you, and so I'm on God's side, or let's be honest, the way we usually say it is God's on my side. 
It isn't any shade of I'm better than you. The essence of Christianity is this. I could not please God at all. I deserved to die for what I had done. But God, out of his sheer grace, God gave a priest, Jesus, who offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice to die in my place, to die the death that I deserved, that you deserved. And because he did, because he took my place, I get to take his place. I get to be in his place and receive the approval from the Father that he earned. I get. I get to live in his place. He was tempted utterly and completely to sin against God. He was tempted in ways far beyond anything you or I could have resisted or would have wanted to resist. And yet he remained faithful. He did not sin because he was tempted. He is able to sympathize, to understand what we are going through and to help when we are tempted. He knows the anguish of being under that weight of temptation. He knows what it is to be fully human, to deal with being tired and hungry and all that goes along with that. How much more difficult is it? I mean, let's just be real. How much more difficult is it for us to stave off temptation to do something that we know we're not supposed to be doing when we haven't had enough sleep? When, for whatever reason, our schedule meant that we had to skip lunch that day, how much harder is it to resist temptation, to resist those thoughts that come into your head? Oh, it'd be better if you just gave up and went and did this thing. Or, oh, everything's awful. It's so much harder to resist when you're tired, when you're hungry, or when you're both. We are created not as souls that simply have a body. We are body and soul knit together in perfection. And so when your body is weak, it affects your soul. It affects you, who you are. When we are tired and hungry and whatever else, when we've been injured, when we're sick, all of those things make resisting temptation that much harder. And Jesus understands because he's been through it himself. It doesn't make our sin any less sinful. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not extenuating circumstances as if it excused our sin. It means that the one who offers the sacrifice on our behalf, the one who is the sacrifice on our behalf, can help us, can encourage us in the midst of those things because he knows them intimately from inside. And this is sealed, secured, known for sure because Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. Verse 14 of chapter 4, he passed through the heavens. Remember, we talked about that last week. Um, This was the visible testimony that Jesus had triumphed over death, that death couldn't hold on to him, that he rose again and ascended. The future hope is secure, and we can know because he was raised from the dead and ascended to be with God. He died in our place, and God raised him from the dead. And if you have stopped trying to earn his favor yourself and simply trusted in his finished work, if you are in him, trusting him to do it, if that's you, if you are his, then you have no need to fear death because you also will rise from the dead. Death will not hold you. 
any more than it could hold Christ. Amen. We are sinful. We do what we are not supposed to do. We fail to do what we are supposed to do. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. If we were to stand before Him now as we are, we would be destroyed. Utterly destroyed. And yet, we can have confidence to run into the throne room and even go sit on Daddy's lap. Know that far from receiving death, we will receive help and encouragement from Him. This is the hope of the present. The hope of the future is that one day after He returns and we are raised with Him, one day we will be completely free of the sin and sickness and pain and death and anguish and temptation. On that day we will be perfectly holy even as Jesus is perfectly holy. This world is not now as it was supposed to be, but neither is it as it shall be. It is not as it was supposed to be, but neither is it as it shall be. The illnesses, the heartache that we experience now will one day end. That is the future hope for you who have trusted Christ's finished work instead of your own works. But our present hope, our present hope is that we are now given free access to the King, welcomed into His presence, not because we're such great people. We've already established pretty clearly that we're not. We will be received We are not good in any respect. We will be received. We have confidence to enter His presence and boldness to expect help because the one who offers Himself as sacrifice on our behalf, He is perfect. He is good. And He knows what we need and He delights to give it to us. He knows what you need, Christian, and He delights to give it to you. He's not up there. When you pray to the Lord, He's not up there going, ah, it's this guy again. He delights to hear from you. He delights to give you what you need. We will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you are a Christian, you have but to ask in faith and you will receive an answer from Him. He will help. Now, it may not be the answer that you thought it was going to be but He will give you the help that you need in that moment. If you're not a Christian, the offer of the gospel contradicts your best hopes. The offer of the gospel is that you can be made right with God. Not that you can be right if you try hard enough, but that you can be made right if you acknowledge that you can't be right no matter how hard you try. It's a contradiction. You have to trust Jesus did everything required by the law, both actively, positively, that he, he was your righteousness, that He was fulfilled all that was necessary for righteousness' sake before the Lord, and also negatively in His passion that He cleansed your sin by paying the penalty for it. You have to trust that He can apply that miraculous benefit to you. And simply ask Him to do so. If you're interested, I'd love to talk to you about it. Any of the leaders in the church, any of the members of the church would love to talk to you about that afterward. Please, if that's where you are, don't endure another day trying to earn God's 
favor. You can't. You're never going to get off of that hamster wheel. Simply receive his pleasure earned by Christ. You can only receive it as a gift. We can't be good enough no matter how hard we try. You can't be good enough no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are. You will fall short if you're trying to earn yourself this holiness. The good news of the gospel is not you can climb the ladder and enter heaven. The good news is this. Cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. You're miserable because you're trying to earn what can't be earned, and you're worse than you think you are, so the hole that you're in is far deeper than you're even aware. But cheer up, you're worse than you think you are, yet God's grace is so far greater than anything you can imagine. It is sufficient to cover no matter how bad you are. It is sufficient to cover all your sins. It is sufficient to make you wholly righteous in His sight. And all you have to do All you have to do to be counted righteous, to be found perfect in God's sight, all that is necessary is accept that you can't earn it and just receive it from Christ. That's all. It is free. So get off the rat race, get off the hamster wheel, and receive rest and perfection from Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you are the great high priest. That you are the source of eternal salvation to all who are your children. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us, shepherd us, steward us into believing that more and more because we struggle so much to believe it. We pray that you would make us holy in your eyes. Wash us clean of our sins. Fill us with your righteousness that we would be found acceptable to you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus and because of his sacrifice in our place. Amen.